This Magic the Gathering podcast and many more can be heard online at manordeprived.com slash podcasts. Leave a comment and tell us what you think. Roman Fusco. Hey, Michael Flores. How goes it this week? Goes pretty well. It's been a busy week. I'm preparing to shoot my short film in a couple weeks, so it's been kind of stressful, but things are going great. Well, I'm much more interested in the meantime in in an event that's going to happen in about a week. What event is this? Grand Prix. The Grand Prix New Jersey. I was going to say here in New York City, but that's a bold not in New York City, sadly, like last year. But I mean, both Grand Prix, well, I believe, were yeah, both advertised as being in New York City. Well, this one wasn't, but they, they, changed, they, they changed it after uh, they advertised last year to be in New York, but it's not. Not even in the correct state. Anyway, I picked this article this week under the philosophy of preparing for a big event and a philosophy that I really like. This article is from January the 5th, 2001, so quite a long time ago. long time ago, 16 years ago. It is from a website called The Dojo or The Magic Dojo. Have you ever heard of this website? I've heard of it. So, Mike, what is The Dojo? So, what was The Dojo? Well, The Dojo was the first great magic website. It came out around, I want to say, 95 or 96. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was part of a group that bought it in circa 98 or 99. I was the boss of it for a little while. Um, just the website. I was the editor in chief. I wasn't the boss of the company that bought it. And then uh, it kind of went away. It was sold to the Sci Fi Channel. Really? Really. Uh, and then I kind of came back for a while. And then it, it went away again. And, and this was actually the second to last article I ever wrote for the dojo. Okay. But it remains among my all time favorite articles I've ever written. Uh, like you said, it's. 15 plus years ago. Yeah, 16 years ago. I really, 16 years ago, sure. I really like it. Um, and I was just wondering if, if it meant anything to you. So maybe I just have like a stilted memory. <laughs> this is like my second to last article that, that I ever wrote, again, for the dojo. And I remember when I attached the file that was this article, the name of the file was what a column is supposed to look like. Nice. Dot txt. So see if you like this one. I, you know, part of what we want to do here on the Ancestral Recall podcast is to expose listeners to stuff that they probably haven't had in front of them before. So Yeah, we're looking at magic articles from 10-plus years ago, more, more sort of giant walls of text than deck lists or you know, kind of the stuff you see every day on some of the big, bigger websites. So hopefully you learn something from these articles um, and that they're – Lessons are still applicable to today. Yeah, so that's Roman's job, right? So my job is to kind of curate the articles we're going to read and read them. And I wrote most of them, all of them. And I, this is the third episode. This is the third episode. I've, I've, so I've written all so three. far, so far, these have been articles you've written. But probably I'll have written all of the articles we ever covered. <laughs> just, just a guess. I think we're going to shake it off. Maybe next week I'll find something. But in any case, you know, Roman's job is to say, hey. Yo, brother, it's 2017. <laughs> this be some old stuff. This ain't good anymore. So let's let's see. So from January the 5th, 2001, this is an article called The Rogue Strategy. I like it. So I think I know what this article is going to be about. About the rogue strategy. The rogue strategy. Showing up to a big event. Or not maybe not a big event, but um, with a deck that's maybe under the radar. Sometimes, not always. Well... Maybe you've read the article. I don't know. Maybe I've taken a skim through. All right, but so we'll, let's, we'll get to the, those parts later. Rolls. All right, let's go. Picture this. You are sitting across the table from a pair of 3-1 high flyers, controlled by Bob Maher Jr., reigning Pro Tour Player of the Year, winner of last year's PT Chicago, incredibly nice guy, incredibly 
unstoppable. There is no one you would like to play less, except maybe Finkel, or that Finkel-slaying, Teva-wearing, Rith-awakening, underground miser, Hibbler. Nice guy Bob is calm and cool and holding three cards. Think. 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 Counter-control is to Maher what mana acceleration is to Mashawitz. Even the aggressive tinker deck that Bob used to Mize Player of the Year last year cited rising waters and miscalculation. And no one needs to mention his GPKC and GP Seattle and PT Chicago Ped Oath performances. You watched him mize the Disrupt last year. You watched him crush the overpowered free spell deck with no permanence in play. Bob swings savagely. It stings. He passes the turn. God. It's three cards in hand. So what's the reference to uh, mizing the Disrupt? So have you seen Maher v. Davis? No. It's uh, the Pro Tour that he won with uh, Peta Oath Bun. And he played against a corrupt Necropotence deck in the finals. Mm-hmm. And the joke is that Bob won that Pro Tour 05. <laughs> um, he, he won from, like, no permanence at some point. His opponent drew probably an average of 14 more cards a game than he was able to win. But in one of the games, you know what a disrupt is, right? Yeah. His opponent... Remind me again. <laughs> it's you for an instant, counter, target, instant, or sorcery, draw a card. Yeah. If they don't pay one. So you can pay one and your card doesn't get countered, but then you draw a card still, right? Mm-hmm. But yeah, he caught like a, dis- uh, a corrupt or a drain life with it, mm-hmm. which was necessary for the opponent to continue drawing cards with Necropotence. So gotcha. he just got him and then he just, he was stuck. And like he had one copy of Disrupt. Like Bob had no permits in play in some of the games, which is impossible. Like he had force of wills, got out of the wasteland situations. It was unreal. Like like I said, like you wouldn't even believe it if you were watching it. He won the Pro Tour 05. So, you stare intently at the pair of airships still lying sideways in the red zone. You knock lightly on your library. Did you ever do that? You knock your library down. Yeah, just for a little, little good yeah, luck. a little good luck. That happened to me over the weekend. <clears throat> I was playing like in a PvP and I needed to, I cracked a clue and need a fatal push off the top to win this game. Did you get it? Yeah, I did. And cracking the clue not only gave you the fatal push, but also the revolt necessary to, to Well, yeah, to kill, like, to kill this guy. Yeah, that doesn't happen a, a lot of the time. <laughs> good job. Well, you have to think yeah. you're going to get it, though. He's just a blue skies deck. Knock lightly on your library. You draw whatever you needed. You know, he's like you. Just draw whatever you need. <laughs> God. He's Bob Marr. God. He has three cards in hand. You need a cover spell for that longbow archers or wrath of God or whatever it is. You watched him mize the disrupt last year. You watched him crush the overpowered free spell deck with no permanence in play. You can smell the thwart now. You wait a second. You plan ahead. It's just a blue skies deck. You pass the turn. The only thing is, Bob doesn't have the thwart. He never will. Instead, he untaps, then taps his airships, then taps all your permanents with tangle wire. Or he makes all your land disappear with parallax tide. Or he washes you right out of the tournament. Sorry, chum. You just lost to the best worst deck in the tournament. You just got rogued. The best worst deck in the tournament? The best worst deck in the tournament. What does that mean? This deck was not good. <laughs> like, imagine that Scissors is really, really bad, right? Uh. So you're like, I'm just never going to play rock because I don't need to play rock. No one will ever play scissors. Right? Uh-huh. I'm just only. I'm just gonna paper it up. If somebody has scissors, you're dead. Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't matter how bad <laughs> scissors is. It's like that. So yeah, no matter how bad it is against, like it isn't. It's just horrible, but it's great against but it's great. you. Though that's yeah. Kind I, of the concept here is because people 
I think people made an assumption about what was in Bob's deck because he showed them certain cards, and we'll get into what some of his cards sure, were. Sure, but his deck just, just told them out of nowhere. Well, yeah, so the Blue Skies deck of the time had these cards like Thwart and Foil, which were free counterspells. Mm. But you had to, like, do horrible things to yourself to cast them. Like, you had to, like, pick up all your islands or discard your hand. Mm. But the thinking is that you have a fast enough clock with your flying creatures who are hard to block, etc. that you can give up a bunch of card advantage or, or board presence in exchange for tempo. Sure. So in the story that we're speculating on somebody drew the wrath of God to kill the two high flyers or a longbow archer to block them, you know, something like that that they would be playing around some of these cards. But Bob just didn't have those cards. So people were just playing around cards that weren't in his deck, and instead he played these goober cards that were horrible for... They like weren't as good, maybe, but they were mm. great if you thought he was playing a bunch of counterspells. I gotcha. Makes so sense? when you get rogued, I mean... Yeah, you got Sometimes, you, you know, you play against decks that you don't know what's near. You don't, like, if you're playing, if you're playing against a rogue deck, you don't know what they're going to have. Yeah, I think that that's a lot of the power of a rogue deck. That, yeah, you know... Some it, it's not always the case that the cards are worse, right? Sometimes the cards are worse. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the name of that card? It's it's white and three. It has landfall. You can either I think give your guys lifelink or make a one creature with it. Retreat. Retreat to, to Amiria. Yeah, is that the name of it? Probably give your guys plus one plus one. It was like an anthem. All right, plus it's plus one plus one. It's land turn, or you make a or you make a guy. Make a guy. All right, you make an ally guy. So that card isn't that popular. Right, right. But you can think of that card as a probably reasonable card, maybe. Right. Like there's there is probably things you could do within the right circumstances, like with with fetch lands. Yeah. So Sam Black played a deck that had that yeah, heavily featured yeah. that card. Right. I remember that. It was was it a band deck or a green? Yeah, green it was a deck? band deck with like wingmate rock stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's just like, this isn't a bad card. It's just not as popular as the cards that people play. And in certain contexts, this card is very, very effective. And I happen to be playing a deck that can exploit its, you know. Yeah. Which is good, right? So I think that it would be a mistake for you to always work under the assumption that because a card isn't popular, a card isn't good. Sure. Right? So imagine for a second, you know, we when, – when the card Tarmogoyf came out, this is an example in Standard, Frank Karsten, who's in the Pro Tour Hall of Fame – was a, a featured writer on Daily MTG, and he was just like, yeah, I think this card is too inconsistent. I think you should play Scat Plan Mauler 2-drop instead in mm-hmm. green, right? So, you know, that meant that Tarmogoyf was less popular at the beginning than it could have been, right? And people, oh, yeah, Tarmogoyf's really inconsistent. I don't think it's good. Because of that, there are a fair number of people who bought a lot of Tarmogoyfs for $5. <laughs> like a lot of Tarmogoyfs for $5. So, And the, uh, what happened there? <laughs> Probably did pretty well in Magic because well. like, like, you know the card was when a card is underpriced by the market, it gets extra oomph. It's, it has an increased likelihood of winning because mm. people underestimate it; they're not prepared for it. You know all kinds of stuff like that. Look, you know there were you know prior to the Pro Tour that Shadow won, right? Would you have thought that Blue White Spirits was going to be like one of the top decks? Maybe, no, maybe, no, right? But it turned out. After that tournament, that it became it was you know one of the almost un, unequivocally the yeah the hottest thing. So you never know. Just just because something's not popular now or you're not familiar with it doesn't mean that it's not good. Mm-hmm. And things that are actively not good can be contextually good. That's the other thing. Sure. Right. Like imagine you play like all all blue elemental blasts. Right. Like they're pretty narrow card. <laughs> But if everyone's playing red decks, it like becomes the most efficient card you could possibly play. Yeah. All right. After Chicago, Don Lim, Toby Walker, and probably everyone else in the cities of New York and Boston fiddled with Maher's deck and wondered how such a pile of poop could have possibly carried Bob to top 16 at PT Chicago. Most threw up their arms and said, he's Maher. Even Zvi Moshowitz concedes the baffling wisdom of Bob Maher. And made up WWBMD. What would Bob Maher do? You're like, what would Jesus do? Yeah. It's we used to say that. They decided that they weren't Bob. And they decided that they should test something else. I think that they missed the point. Yes. Bob's deck was awful. Objectively. And if both players knew that, it isn't going to beat much of anything. The only player I know who still liked Bob's deck after Chicago is his sometimes and my sometime draft partner, Tim McKenna, 
who said that I would be a beep if I didn't switch in a main deck Lucky Jin. Why, Tim? So I can let my opponent draw three cards before I concede? Uh, there's a card indentured Jin, which is, I want to say UU1 for a 4-4 flyer, mm-hmm. but the opponent draws three cards when it comes to that. <laughs> that seems... I mean, three mana for a 4-4 flyer is yeah. gasoline. You have to be lucky, though. It's lucky Jin. Sure. The main problem with this analysis is that Bob's deck also looks an awful lot like two or three other decks. If you don't know that it is a no-permission-slash-tempo-slash-onk hybrid, you might mistake it for Seth Burnwaters or Blue Skies or traditional Onktide. You might hold back so you can counter the thwart, daze, or foil that will never hit Bob's hand. It is very unlikely that you will see yourself getting tangled or washed out of the tournament, and you certainly wouldn't expect that much main deck time control. At Chicago, I am convinced that the Great One stole tons of games from people who were expecting something very different from what they got, and misplayed right into the Bomber's hands. For reference. All right. Uh, Anktide Standard Chicago 2000 by Bob Maher. So we've got four Ank of Mishra, four Chimeric Idol, four Tangle Wire, four Parallax Tide, four Shot in Airship, four Spike Tail Hatchling, four Troublesome Spirit, four Washout, four Withdraw, 15 Island, one Wrath's Edge, four Rashawn Port, four... I'm going to mess this up. <laughs> Sphel... Spell Unite. Spell Unite Temple? Yeah. What does that card do? It's a blue double land. All right. Uh, so... I just... I guess I didn't write sideboards back then. <laughs> I was just like, I guess... Did they not have 15 cards? <laughs> they had sideboards. I guess I just didn't find it important to put them into the deck list in my articles. <laughs> Here's another one. Pretend it is U.S. Nationals 1997. There is no fire god. No spectacled vegetarian yet sits on the throne of the King of Beatdown though some other blue-haired vegetarian seems to be gunning for the chair. You sit across from some guy who makes all the PTs by actually playing fires, who, by all accounts, got to this tournament on the basis of some force of nature... Excuse me. Force of nature theme deck. Do you know what force of nature is? That's the, the one that makes sap runs, right? No, that's verdant force. Verdant force, sorry. Look up force of nature. Well, what does that one do? It's, I, I, it's awful. It costs it's like awful? 100 mana... It's 100 mana upkeep. Yeah, it's awful. Gross. We can look it up. We'll talk about it later. <laughs> they say he qualified for Paris with Ironclaw Orcs and Goblin Tinkerers. He scrubbed out of day one, but is playing today for the love and the hate. He just cast a Goblin Digging Team. Oops, you're dead. We lost to Goblin Goblin Digging Team? Yeah, do you know what that is? No. It's just awful. It's like R for a 1-1. One, one. I think you can tap and sacrifice it to destroy a wall. I think that that's what it does. Were walls a big thing back then? No. Oh. <laughs> it was just like, there were walls, but yeah. like it was just a red one drop you could play that had one power, and you just had to have it for curve. Mm-hmm. So I'm if you were playing back in 2001, you would have you would have recognized this as a description of Dave Price, uh, the king of red, the uh, king of beatdown, mm-hmm. uh, who became a legend uh, up to and including winning a pro tour with Mono Red uh, by 1998. Uh, his first big red win was in, I, I want to say, late 1996 or early 1997. One of these two was after. It must have been early 1997 because it was a 1996 standard, which was a, he just won a PTQ with a mono red deck. Mm-hmm. And he was declared the greatest red player in the world by winning a PTQ. Uh, he qualified for U.S. Nationals by playing a deck that had Force of Nature in it. Honestly, look it up. It's the worst. You can't imagine that, that uh, All right. it would. Uh, he would qualify someone for a big tournament, but and he scrubbed out of day one of U.S. Nationals 1997. But you could still play in day two back then, even if you were not eligible. Sure. And he got a perfect 6-0, uh, which was like unheard of uh, for somebody who who had scrubbed out. And the ratings points that he got from that perfect 6-0 are actually what qualified him for the Pro Tour that he wow. won. And then he became. Then he top eighted U.S. Nationals with Monterey. Next year, he became known as the greatest red beatdown player of all time. But the thing that's important about his 1997 deck was it's like all these joke cards that sure. no one would play. But they were meta- but they were they, it was a good meta game choice. Yeah, but it say. turned out later though it was a great deck, right? Sure. And the people just didn't understand his cards. Well, did, was, so did he go into that tournament with a mindset that this deck was good? 
beat everyone else that was a good meta game choice, well, or just kind of like a thing well, so together. Know, I know these things from being friends with Dave, right? So, sure. Uh, the the following things happened, right? This card, Free Wind Falcon, was was printed, which is white and one for a one one flyer with protection from red. Okay. Dave didn't think people would play that very much. Uh, I want to say it won U.S. Nationals. <laughs> um, I, I think it won U.S. Nationals that year. Uh, but, yeah, he just didn't think people would play it. It doesn't sound like a very important thing. No. Right, so. But he said even if they did play it, that might scare other people away from playing red decks. Okay. Which would make it so that the other decks would be less prepared for red decks. Right? So it's sure, like right? kind of like the circular. Cycle, yeah. Right? That's one. But then the other thing that was really important was that Right before U.S. Nationals, they changed the rotation policy, so Ice Age came back into Standard, okay. which did two things. It reintroduced Swords to Plowshares to Standard, and it reintroduced Necropotence to Standard sure. with Contagion. They said, well, look, can, do you know what Contagion is? Is that the artifact? Or is that no. It costs, it's an instant that costs Black Black 3, Yeah, but you can cast it by discarding uh, a black card for sure. free. It's like a black force of will. Yeah. And it puts two minus two minus one counters. You can play them any way you want. You can put them both on one creature. You can put them on, on two different creatures. Red decks, especially red decks with haste, really effective against Necrobotan's decks. Contagion is really ineffective against the cards that Dave chose to play in his deck. Right? Hmm. Now, separate from that, one of the signature cards in Dave's deck is this card, Lava Hounds, that no one else would ever, ever played and almost no one ever else would ever play. And they put it in a... In a base set in future years and I tried to play it but it costs RR2 you get a 4-4 creature with haste for RR2 which is you know maybe you'd want to play that right mm-hmm. it deals 4 damage to you when it comes into play so Dave's theory is that if Swords of Plashers comes back then he's going to get a bunch of life back people are going to be plowing his guy it's going to make up for the 4 life loss that he has mm-hmm. right so he just like put together all these things and it actually just turned out that his deck was great Right. Wow. But that's it, like the perfect combination. Of yeah. Everything but he's going playing like right. all horrible cards like Goblin Digging Team because yeah. just for curve. Like there were no, you know, there were no like fire Goblin ma- guys. Yeah, or Goblin Jack- guys. Jackal back pups. Then. Yeah. Or... The stuff that you get to play with now, they didn't have. There was no Monastery Swift Spear. <laughs> well, like, his deck would be unbeatable if there was Monastery Swift Spear. Sure. You know. So anyway, though Sly was a known archetype even at that stage in Magic history, the 1997 Dead Guy Red took the tournament by storm. Just read the old Nationals 1997 reports. Many people have things to say about their experiences against Dave. Look especially at champion Justin Gary's report. The funnier thing about Dave's success at Nationals that year was that he built Dead Guy Red as a metagame call against a field with few free wind falcons and honorable passages. Lots of flying glaciers and necropotences. Not a lot of damage decks. His lava hounds were great because of that field. Even after going 6-0 from a week's start, they've never expected the deck to catch on and become actually dominant in Standard. Um, Thawing Glaciers was the was widely considered the best card in Standard uh, at the time. Do you know what that does? I think so. It's, it's the land that... Is it up, the upkeep one? No, it comes no. into play tapped. Yep. And it has the ability, one tap, return it to your hand. Sure. It's a more esoteric version of one tap, return it to your hand. Search through your library for a basic land directly into play. Oh, okay. So you could play like a five-color deck with like one, one basic of each color, just as an example of something you could do. And if you were a control deck playing against a combo deck or a control deck, having Thawing Glaciers in your deck basically ensured that you never missed a land drop because mm-hmm. it returns to your hand, right? So you could just keep playing the Thawing Glaciers, yeah. use it to gain card advantage in like kind mm-hmm. of a weird mana acceleration that doesn't really set you ahead, but it puts the lands directly into play. But you just keep hitting your land drops because your deck is full of basics and you just keep playing the Thawing Glaciers. Does that make sense? Yeah. And there's, like, crazy things you could use. There was Brainstorm back then. So Brainstorm, uh, yeah, Thawing, yeah, Glaciers Brainstorm. combo was insane. Like, yeah, John Finkel that, that seems pretty insane. qualified for U.S. Nationals with a deck that year that had, I think, only 17 lands, but four Thawing Glaciers and four Brainstorms. So You're always going to hit. Yeah, so all you have to do is, like, mulligan to Thawing Glaciers, and it doesn't matter if you only have 17 lands in your deck. Yeah. And uh, Thawing Glaciers actually turns Brainstorm into Ancestor Recall, which is a really kind of... It, it'll take you a while thinking about it if you're not familiar with the cards. But the thing that's probably confusing to you is like, oh, well, it takes a lot of time to do a lot of these things. The answer is yes. But most of the decks were built to a lot for this on both sides, mm-hmm. but not Dave. <laughs> <laughs> Oops, you're dead. He could beat you, I think, on turn four, which was 
excruciating. No, those other dice were prepared to do. Yeah, they're like they're not planning to play an untapped land before turn four, right? Yeah. And lest I be misinterpreted before I even get to the crux of the column, you don't have to be Bob the Bomber or Dave Price for these tricks to work. The issues of rogue deck design are about playing an unexpected archetype, one that might look like another deck, but is composed of totally different cards, or one composed of scoffed-at spells that will bedevil your opponents. Loosely speaking, rogue decks are those that fall outside the expected field of decks. Their power is that they are generally not prepared for by opponents in either their deck choices or sideboards. Sometimes Rob Hahn will reveal Oath of Druids, and you will just have a leg up in time before the rest of the world discovers the new good spells. Sometimes you will have Mike Denae supplying you with the Curiosity Thalico's Drifter's Engine, and the rest of the world will just not know about the best deck until some two-time Canadian national champion shows them. But, to be honest, those instances are rare. A lot of the time, as with the main weakness of rogue strategies in general, the decks tend to be filled with cards like Scoria Cat at the 5 spot instead of cards like Blinding Age. Look, if you don't want people to prepare for your cards, you have to play with cards for which they aren't going to prepare. Sure. So basically, if you're going to play a rogue, rogue strategy, your cards have to be different from what people are, are playing. You don't, want to, you, you don't want to play just a worse version of a card that already exists and people are prepared for, right? Yeah, so you wouldn't want to play a card that was like... Um, I don't know, like, instead of, like, Yeheni, which is B2 for a 2-2 haste with other abilities, you wouldn't yeah. want to play, like, Scathe Zombies, which is just a B2 for a 2-2, right? Exactly. Like, if somebody was, like, prepared to beat Yeheni, they could certainly beat Scathe Zombies, right? Yeah. Um, the same is not necessarily true for Scariah Cat versus a smaller creature. Right? What's Scariah Cat? It's this uh, red, large red creature that only Brian Kibler would play. <laughs> <laughs> but he got big. You had to tap all your lands. Sure. So, um... And it, you know, there. When I was joking about Dave's force of nature, the reason he played the card was because it was too big to kill with the most of the conventional removal. It was like an inefficient creature, especially his deck only had twenty lands. Mm. I think it cost like something like six or eight mana. But he would only play it in situations where he didn't think his opponent could remove it, and then it would kill them. You know, mm-hmm. um, we used to have this philosophy in limited, which is that there are two points of evaluation on a card. One point of evaluation on the card is whether or not. You want to have it in your deck, right? And you make that evaluation when you draft, right? I take a card, and I'm happy to take a card. I'm unhappy to take a card, et cetera. And then you might want to... You play the card, you don't play the card, right? You know, we're building decks, drafting decks. That is completely different from once the card is already in play. All right, so Patrick Chapin and I actually talked about this on Top of a Podcast this week. You don't think of a card like Inferno Titan as being great in modern. It's a great card. Believe me, I've, yeah. I've, I've personally won big tournaments with it, right? It's yeah. a great card. Patrick has won great tur- big tournaments with it. But once it's in play, right, like Inferno Titan, unless the opponent is playing with Emrakul or Grizzlebrand or Primeval Titan, right, that's about it. Like N minus – so it's, I'd say like N minus 2.5 creatures are worse than Inferno Titan. Sure. Right? If it's, it's he's squaring off against anybody else – from Death Shadow to Tarmogoyf, Inferno Titan probably owns them. He has fire breathing. He's huge. He has an insane triggered ability. So you have this calculus that is, well, I don't really think Inferno Titan is that good in modern. Okay, I respect your opinion. Might not think that. But you can't. You must also respect the fact that if somebody casts an Inferno Titan against you, it's better it, than what is in your deck in all likelihood, right? Sure. Right, so... That's the thing that you have to evaluate for. Uh, and then you, and really when you're talking about rogue decks, the question you have to ask yourself is, all right, if we're making an evaluation based on whether or not we want the card in our deck, right, which is what we were talking about, you know, about drafting a card or putting a card in our deck or about making a decision to play Inferno Titan or not, that is an evaluation we're making that has costs associated, right? Basically, am I willing to pay the costs necessary to make this card viable in my deck, right? Mm-hmm. But once you've passed that point, you say yes, I'm willing to do this. I'm going to I'm going to play with stuff so I can exploit energy. I'm going to do something until I can exploit reanimation, right? That's how a lot of the broken decks end up working, right? There are a bunch of crappy cards that enable the powerful cards. Once you've made that determination, now your opponents are challenged with having to deal with cards that they might not have expected. And, you know, 
imagine you're in a format like current, you know, standard where the the Cadillac removal spells are Fatal Push and and um, Grasp of Darkness. Yeah. Anything bigger than 4-4 four, four, or anything that costs in some cases more than 2 or in some cases more than 4 has a layer of durability that is outside the, well, the yeah, typical like, confines there, of the metagame. There's definitely like the four colors of Healy, like the Jeskai and four colors of Healy decks that are playing Harness Lightning that that's kind of the reach to get to that, that level. Like if I have an 8-8 eight, eight Burger Seeker Hulk that's resolved, it's hard to deal with, but I mean can still generate a bunch of energy and like kill the harness lightning, but your options are very slim then. I we can talk about this elsewhere. But sure. I actually think that harness lightning is kind of bad in Marvel <laughs> decks. Like you don't want to waste all of your energy into it and it's a no, poor no, not gener- Marvel. I'm thinking more of like Sahili strategies. Oh like just like four color. Okay. Yeah. You, all right, fair. You, you see what I mean? Like it, it's it's hard to deal with well, that deck not have Marvel and as Marvel. Some versions do. Anyway. Anyway. Playing rogue decks isn't just about playing suboptimal cards, though Nate Heiss has baffled us over and over with his success using mannequins and walls of heat. Sometimes suboptimal cards that no one is expecting can do a number on a field, and they have a fine spot in the rogue pantheon. John Becker and Gerard Fabiano gained much life with their armadillo cloaks. They can barely make Brian Kibler's sideboard in Type 2. They cost as much as Necropotence, donate in Ball Lightning, Generate an inherent loss in card economy. And yet, these cloaks are pulling players out of 21 in single donate rate, quickening clocks and making it even harder to hunt the already nigh unkillable Wumpus. Armadillo cloak is, is it one GY? It's, a, it's the same as a. Uh, as a. Uh, uh, it's like. Something, yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's, it it's, gives like plus two, plus two in lifelink? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And trample. And trample, yeah. yeah. So that, that was a, a format where. You shoot up a creature with that. Well, yeah, but I mean, if you're, we were the, the reference I'm making is for extended. So, yeah. like the cards you could play: Necropotence, Donate, and um, Ball. You know, really, really powerful cards for three. It's a format where you stick a creature enchantment on a creature. You know, it could you could lose two cards. But yeah, and I mean, the Anion Killable Wumpus is a six-six for four that has a horrendous drawback. You know what it does? What? They can just play a creature out of their hand. So they could play a creature that's bigger than Hunted Wampus. Problem. Sure. People still played it. <laughs> Different time back then. Different time. I find that the whole suboptimal cards slash windmill slam out of nowhere strategy works best when no one is looking. I managed by sheer Schneider power and no skill of my own to qualify in an extended PTQ in 1999 over GP Dallas champ Matt Vianu by summoning Flesh Reaver. What can I say? I packed game one to Sly all day, prayed to God I would never see Wall of Blossoms. I managed to outplay anyone foolish enough to run Pox, because I was strapped in for the game, if the rack ever resolved. Why would you play Pox, by the way? You could play, like, High Tide and Necropotence back then. On the other hand, Forbidian and combo players across the table were destroyed left and right by the quick and horrible Flesh Reavers and the savage disruption of Suicide King. The Suicide King archetype ended the 1999 1.x season as one of the top two or three decks. Certainly the most consistent, putting John Becker in a top eight and winning PTQs the last weekend for both me and Piero. Out of four total players, even Altran Mize, the bad five and two finish in his lone Suicide King attempt, losing only to a random consult. Had it been known, though, people could have easily prepared for it. We may have seen more fire, more anti-black, more Oath of Druids, or just more creature decks, as the combo and permission decks would have been at least somewhat pushed out of the center. So that's a reference back to that PTQ. We talked about this in the, our first episode. Yeah. This was the, the Suicide King deck that um, you faced relatively bad matchups all day, but yeah. ended up winning the, the PTQ. I won, yeah. It was like an, an infinity round PTQ where I mostly just got lucky. <laughs> Yeah, but this is a rogue deck you were playing. Yeah, so um, why don't you just rattle off the cards that we can just talk about sure. what makes it a rogue deck and why there were some advantages to it. All right, uh, so Suicide King Extended Spring 1999, Brian Schneider. Four Curse Scroll, four Sphere of Resistance. Four Carnophage, four Dark Ritual, four Demonic Consultation, four Duress, two Flesh Reaver, four Hymn to Torak, four Sacromancy, Sarcomancy, sorry. Four Skittering Scourge, or Mishra's uh, Factory, 14 Swamp, 4 Wasteland. 
So this is like a, at least for its time, a fast creature deck. Like you could use Dark Ritual to theoretically drop six power on the first turn. That's a sure. thing you could do. Um, and then it had like a substantial amount of disruption. It had Duress and Hemdatorok and Sphere of Resistance and Demonic Consultation. It's like really good aggressive deck. Yeah, I mean, relative to what you could play, right? So, I think if you played this deck today, it probably wouldn't qualify as a great aggressive deck. But <laughs> I, you know, it may be aggressive at yourself because it does a lot of damage to yourself. But if a deck like this were known, people would have just played more red decks than they did. And like, let, let's say, like we like, it ended up being contextually the best deck you could play. But if everyone's like, oh. These pro players are going to play this deck. Maybe we should play red decks. Would you say this deck is kind of close to uh, Death Shadow as like a modern day reference? I think that there are a lot of parallels. Yeah, like sure. Both from damaging yourself and like a small number of really good players performing with it. Yeah, so like we could make, kind of make this uh, a parallel to this deck and burn. Let's say right. I've been just I've been waiting for a. a you modern can't tournament. wait to play I can't modern. Wait to play modern because if if. If, if uh, suicide, or not suicide, death shadow. Death shadow is a very big deck. I'm I'm pretty excited to play against it. I think. You know, Jerry thinks that burn is a good matchup. Really? Yeah. You think well, you, I guess you, think you could take Jerry. I want to take Jerry off. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they, they do have like inquisitions and all this nonsense going on. I think it'll be a good fight. I think. I, I think. I think it's a deck that I'd like to play against. Yeah. Well, maybe I, I could get beat. But... I beat all the red decks I played in that tournament, but it was tough. <laughs> You know, and we we super prepared in our sideboard. With it. That's the other. Yeah, thing. I want to play like Blessed Alliance out of my sideboard for death. Make I, them gain, I was make them gain for life. Separate. I was thinking about what if we what if we just moved the searings out of the main deck and played four, count them four, count them four deflecting. Oh. Main deck. <laughs> That's something I would do. You can go ahead and do that. <laughs> What matchup is it not great in? Ad nauseum? Jund. It's bad against It's great against ad nauseum. Are you kidding? Oh, sure. Not, not, not ad nauseum. When they use their lightning storm? All right. Cast, the, cast probably the most relevant card in my deck against your lightning storm. They're going to have a pact of negation at this point. Like, you're, they're going to have it. But yeah. at least you have a relevant play. I guess Jund is like... Yeah, but Jund is so easy. A and B, Searing is bad against Jund. Mm. Unless they're like some kind of Bob Jund. But, like, I, I, I think it's fine. Like... If you just reverse the damage on a Tarmogoyf, that's pretty good. Sure. I'd live with that. Like, two, two mana take five? Maybe it's not as good against, like, Rix's decks? But Searing isn't good against those decks. Kills Delver. If you have problems killing Delver, I, I just don't even <laughs> tell you. Like, I have been, I've spent, like, years playing burn decks against Delver decks, and you just never lose if you're competent. Like, it's, it, you can just side them back in, it's okay. And the Ooh. super off chance that, that this would happen. Maybe we do play for the fucking bomb. Yeah. We'll talk about this later. <laughs> I'm telling you, dude. I was thinking about this a lot. I'm like, I think I would own this format if I did this. Just Maybe. It's like rando good against dredge, like when they go to conflagrate you. You know how many yeah. times I wish I had a main deck deflecting bomb? Yeah, when they conflagrated me. Like I'm like, oh my god, he's just he's overloading me because to make sure that I don't have something stupid like a lightning helix to get out. I can kill him if I had a if I had a... I'm, I'm fairly certain. I don't know if this is the last Star City Open or... Now that you've spent 30 Grand, seconds thinking about this, you know that I'm right. Grand Prix. It was one of the last either the two Grand Prix or Star City Open. There was definitely a burn player with two deflecting palm in his main deck. That top 16 or top 30. Yeah, I didn't. I haven't seen it. I got to look back and, and find that that list, but in, it was a red-white deck. Yeah, I was saying, because Searing is so bad against, against Death Shadow. Yeah. So, I mean, it's fine against... But like, All right, let's get back on track here. A related strategy for the rogue player is the Maher situation from the top of the page. Your opponent recognizes your cards, but he is totally baffled and doesn't know what your deck is supposed to do. He completely misses your strategy or misplays right into it. These rogue decks tend to do well at unveiling only. Once everyone knows your deck list, it is hard to completely misdirect them. Nonetheless, we have instances of the Bomber's top 16 at this year's Chicago and of a queer Hermetic Crab slash Enchantress deck that befuddled its way to the top eight of GP Memphis. Let's be honest, though. Once tends to be enough when you get to come home with the brass ring. Former Cabal teammate and fellow lover of the attack phase Bill Macy once said that Jamie Wakefield picked a deck that he wanted to beat 
and more or less ignored the rest of the environment. When Jamie qualified for PT New York 1999 with Secret Force, he beat tons of permission decks, including Brian Kibler's Forbidian and the editor's House of Slivers, with spike manipulation. Could he beat survival? No. Did he care? No. He decided he was going to play a spike-slash-choke-slash-fatty deck, knock around some weenie players, and hope he dodged the opponents he couldn't beat. This is also an acceptable strategy for the rogue player. If you can accurately predict a good portion of the expected decks, you can oftentimes build a deck that will defeat those consistently and just ignore the other portion of the field, hoping you won't play them. This strategy was perfected by Aaron Breeder of Michigan with his Piece of Crap deck. Piece of Crap had strong performances against Tricks, Beatdown, any single-minded deck, but weak showings against versatile survival of the fittest decks. Aaron would play maybe one to two survival decks per tournament at most, and make top eight each week. Eventually, he got put in the opposite bracket from the awful survival deck, let that deck lose to the good tricks deck, and then he won with his silly Shard Phoenix theme deck. So the name of his deck was Piece of Crap, because it was, you know, it was Piece of Crap. He had discard Piece of Mind. Yeah, Piece of Mind. So his, his strategy was to discard Shard Phoenix to Peace of Mind, and then he could buy back Shard Phoenix because he had enough mm-hmm. mana, and then he could discard Shard Phoenix to Peace of Mind. I think he probably also had Squee, so you could just gain a ton of life. Like, if you were playing, you just play, like, second turn Peace of Mind, or I think it costs two, right? And you just keep playing White Lands. Yeah. If you're playing against, like, Red Decks, who are, like, full of, like, Ball Landings and Fire Blasts, you just, just if, if it's, I think he had Squee. If you just discard a bunch of cards every turn, you just, like, gain nine life a turn or something. Yeah. That's all his deck did. So if you're playing against Tricks, do you know what Tricks is? No. It's Illusions of Grandeur Donate. So it's, like, a really powerful deck, but it could do 20. Or if they did it to the comedy twice, it could do 40. If they did the combo times, three times, you do 60. It's really hard to do the combo twice, let alone three. You could just go to 23 or whatever, and like now they had to double combo you. Like, but you could just be in a situation where you're just like discarding, discarding, discarding. If all you did was discard a shard phoenix, they would still have to double combo you. They, like, yeah. So like you would have so much time to like buy back the shard phoenix and then use it again. Or just discard random cards, right? Like, like, just keep getting lighter. Yeah, like they're playing a combo deck. You just discard Wrath of God. Right, like, like all these cards don't matter. Extra lands, just discard them. You just go up high enough that you can't lose. The problem with the deck is that it was horrible against decks that did more than one thing. So, if you're playing That'd be survival against, decks, yeah. So if you're playing against red, like imagine you're red, your deck is just nothing but like lightning Beautiful. bolts and fire right. Like, so, All right, every single card I draw is three life. Yeah, some of my cards are three life more than once. You know, mm. like they can't win. It's horrible for them. Like they have to put so much stuff in play and just like wrap them or whatever. But, but what? Against these other decks. Yeah. If, if you ever find yourself against like a survival of the fittest deck. Yeah, that can do like a hundred different things. Like it has one copy of each of a bunch of different awesome cards. Yeah. Can, yeah. He, they would just pick you apart. Like, all right, I'll destroy your enchantment and I'll destroy your hand. Or you like 26 life. All right, I'll attack you three times with like my 6-6 six, six creature. You're dead. Yeah, you're dead. So. But he wasn't trying to, he, he had the, the mindset, I'm not going to play this deck during the tournament. Yeah, exactly. So he's just going to He survi- wasn't preparing for that. Survival decks are bad. In yeah. Aaron's mind, right? Because um, they're not good against tricks, and they're not great against red, okay. right? So that's that's his that's his mindset. And he's like, you know, the people who are doing well are like tricks, oath, red, etc. And I'm good against those decks. But Aaron kept making top eight, but he kept losing to survival decks in the top eight. But he just made so many top eights. Eventually, he just didn't play against a survival deck. If your deck could only do one thing, he always beat you. It was, that's that's kind of really cool, right? Because it was good against red decks and good against combo decks. And it was this deck like all it was a piece of crap. It just yeah, <laughs> threw away creatures. Piece of crap. Piece P E A C E. Yeah, P I E C E. Yeah, it was a piece of mind. The best of times is when the rogue strategy is simply the best deck, though no one knows it but you. As I hinted above, this happened at Origins 1998 when Oath of Druids made its first appearance during the late Wrath cycle with Curious George in 1999 with a Suicide King and last year Chicago with Cocoa Pebbles, and at GP Seattle with the unveiling of tricks. In these rare cases, the rogue strategy is doing double duty. Usually its advantage is in surprise. Usually another deck has a different advantage in power and consistency. But when the rogue deck is new and unexpected and also best, you have things like brilliant Swiss showings where you lose only to your teammates' same deck, or you win a GP, or everyone playing the deck makes top 16, if not top 8. The only thing with this last breath, though, is that the strategy is not rogue for long. And you now have the opportunity to play against your own deck for the rest of the season. Just ask 
Don Lim. Don Lim created Parallax Replenish. Okay. So couldn't convince anyone it was good. Him but, and his friends all qualified for nationals playing this. Yeah. Like one minute later, it was the only deck anyone played. And then other than John Finkel, Tinker. Well, he played Napster first. Mm-hmm. We made our Napster deck so it would always be replenished. Before nationals, are na- like Napster versus replenished was like 50-50. But like me and Don were friends and we played against each other. So, But then we figured out how to always beat replenish. But then Zvi figured out how to make replenish always beat Napster and didn't tell us, which is super gas. But nice. all the Napster guys beat Zvi anyway because he got me screwed. <laughs> <laughs> ah, my pretties. I know I have given you a lot this week. But if you want a final image of the rogue, look no further than this. There sits, in the middle of the room, an enormous gamer wearing an apparently enormous t-shirt reading Metagame in bold black, blue, red, white, sometimes even green letters. And sneaking up behind him, surreptitiously as always, standing on the shoulders of Malka, is John Schuler, face wrinkled up in an evil grin, stabbing that big fat game back. Love, Mike. Props, B. Schneid. It is what it is. Kibbs, permed on the dojo. Lanimal, give me back my damn Seder. Uh... Brian Schneider is the former head of development. Now, at this point in time, in 2017, he has long ago not been the head of development anymore. Sure. Back in 2001, he was just a great deck designer. My friend, th- these are my teammates in a team called the Underground. Brian Kibler is, of course, uh, Underground time, Dojo, which is called the Underground. <laughs> um, uh, Brian Kibler was a member of the Pro Tour Hall of Fame, two-time Pro Tour champion, and Landy Ho. We actually mentioned. And a movie club here in New York. Um, we uh, Brian Schneider was actually originally a member of Team CMU, and uh, we just like road road trip with like me and my friends at Discovery Channel, and then like this is way more fun. <laughs> <laughs> so he he left the best team in America <laughs> to uh, hang out with <laughs> a bunch of goobers who, who uh, made inappropriate comments all the time. All right. So what did you think of the rogue strategy? I know this is an article that's probably very close to you because I know you like to play a bunch of... Like, you like to kind of tinker around with, with... At least since we've been talking the last couple of years, you've always been trying to tinker around with different ideas in the standard and, and modern or what's like the best deck to play. What can, we, what can we do this week that beats X deck, right? That's just math, man. That's how I look at magic. Sure. Yeah. Um, no, it, I think it is very... Still relevant today. To today, um, there's some things I want to discuss. Sure. Um, so I think one thing that we should talk about is the kind of standard environment that was around 16 years ago compared to today, or sort of the way cards are different today than maybe 16 years ago. So I think that there have been great standards and not good standards. Yeah. In the, in the and that a lot of the traits that I don't like standard right now. No. In terms of how most people look at standard, it's more or less a 2.5 to 3 deck metagame, and it's largely unfun, and it's very... The thing that makes it most unfun, in my opinion, is that time is so constricted. It's almost like playing modern. Yeah. The answers aren't very good, um, and there's not a lot of play around it, and the edges are so narrow. Like, they're... I don't find it to be rewarding to play, personally. If, if, yeah. At least as long as you're locked into, like, the... The 2.5 to 3 deck metagame. That probably isn't so different than a lot of the standards in, in years past. Uh, what was standard at this time that I was writing this? Probably a Fires of Yavim. I probably didn't like that standard that much either. Um, but, you know, there were things you could do. You know, there's yeah. always things you can do uh, that, to different degrees of efficacy. It's rare that there's a standard that I would really throw up my arms and say. That was amazing. That was no, great. no, just play the deck to beat. Right. Yeah. Like, it's almost it's so rare. I think off the top of my head, I think the only time there was a standard that playing the decks the deck to beat was mathematically correct was during the height of Cawblade. And even then, for me it was better to play Splinter Twin. Um because I wasn't the best Cawblade player in the world at Cawblade Mirrors. Yeah. So if you were the best player in the world at Cawblade Mirrors, then probably it was right to play Cawblade. But if you weren't, you were just very good, then you 
we're almost certain to lose Callblade Mirrors, which is not good. Yeah. So you should play a deck that maybe had less edge across the whole field, but was capable of beating Callblade. Because yeah. there's all the. It's not that all the players are playing Callblade. It was that all the good players were playing Callblade. So, it, like, if you play against you know, like if you play against medium players, like you're only likely to lose if you're mana screwed. That's true regardless of which deck you're playing. Sure. Um, and that's standard anyway, because that standard was like ninety percent skill, maybe more than ninety percent skill. Most standards are are some percentage skill and some percentage luck, but that one was, like, really high. It was, like, maybe 93% skill. So if it's a format that's 93% skill, you'll very rarely lose to a player of inferior skill to you, right? So all of your metagaming decisions should be around players who are better than you, mm. right? Because so otherwise you can't win the tournament. Like, if you're if you're playing Cobblade and Cobblade is determined at, like, 97% in the mirror match to the player of greater skill, if you're not confident that you're the player of greater skill, specifically in the Cobblade mirror, you're almost you're almost certain to not be able to win the tournament because every competent player, and I mean every in quotes, is playing Callblade, right? So, um, what you should do instead is to play, in my opinion, right? And I won a lot in that format, <laughs> is to pick a deck that has a higher high likelihood of beating medium players or bad players, players who are not as good as you, and then a, a deck that gives you chance to beat the best players. But mm-hmm. and that's not Callblade if you're not the best Callblade player. Yeah, Patrick Chapin. Uh, had a high degree of confidence in, de- in that era that he would always win the Cobblade Mirror. If that's the if that's your your calculus, then you should play Cobblade, yeah. right? Because it because on average, if you just compare archetype against non mirror match archetype, it had the highest win ratio, right? It's like seventy five percent against non Cobblade decks, right? Like versus Splinter's wins only like sixty percent against non Cobblade decks. Sure. That's like those are it, it, that's again controlling for skill. I thought that that's the apex of standard, though. I thought that was probably the best standard I'd ever played, or close to it. Um, uh, but, like, there have been a lot of different miserable standards. Like, I, I, I feel like I didn't super like the standard that was going on when I wrote this article, which was, like, uh, it's funny because I said, like, the only person you would not want to play is, like, Bob, John, or Kibler. Kai had just won a Pro Tour. I think that was his first non-Worlds Pro Tour that he won, and he went on to win, like, all the Pro Tours that year. Mm-hmm. Uh, but... Kai is a great example in this. He he entered a metagame where Fires of Yavimaya was the deck to beat. And Kibler approached the Fires of Yavimaya uh, quasi-mirror match in one direction, going kind of more green-white than green-red. So his deck was like kind of more resilient in creature combat. And he didn't play Fires of Yavimaya, which means he couldn't get the most powerful aggressive attacks. But he was good... He just didn't have a wasted card when he's playing against other Fires decks, right? So Fires of Yavimaya is great if you're just getting the rush on someone, but the the decks could stabilize if two two guys both had big creatures, right? So Kibler played a strategy where he just, instead of having those four, like, haste cards, he who cares if you have, your 5-5 five five is haste? My 5-5 five five doesn't have haste. I'll just block yours, you know? Mm-hmm. That was kind of the attitude he took. So he, he approached it from one direction. Kai approached it from the direction of playing Rebels, and he, his deck was like had some card advantage to it. It was also good at blocking. That was like that's how he did it. And you know, I I, I later that year approached it with rebels, a different kind of rebel strategy. And you know, there are different levels of efficacy that that you could have had there. But you were fairly restricted because Blastoderm was super resilient to removal. Also, the removal wasn't good. Um, Sapling Burst was super resilient to removal, and the opponent's creatures a lot of haste. So if if you start with that paradigm. Kind of limits the potential decisions you. Um, same with standard right now. We have this huge swath of basically creatures that all have haste, like a Heart of Kieran, and yeah. and they all have haste. You know, they're like they're an, they're not a creature, and all of a sudden you're getting attacked by a four four flyer. Right. If you're going to be in a format like that, I think that you have one of two options. One of them is pick the archetype deck. That you're going to play out of the 2.5 available archetypes. So to recap, there's like Marty vehicles. Yeah, like Mar- like Marty versions. vehicles versus Marty Ballista. Yeah, okay. there's green black, like three or four there. different kinds. Yeah, yeah, the best kind probably energy version. But there's some other delirium strategies. I don't know, like and... the Eldrazi version won the Glass Grand Prix, right? Like you know the Catacomb Sifter deck. Like I, I don't know which yeah. is the best. Um, the last Grand Prix was won by Ballista. Well, the one, you well, know, the, one, the one green one, yeah. And then there's Sahili, there's Four Color and Jeskai. Four Color probably the stronger of, is the stronger of the two. Well, I don't know. It depends who you ask, right? I, I don't know that anybody has, like, this 
this 3,000 foot global purview over what everyone's going to play. If you did, you're like, all right, I know what everyone's going to play. You can make a mathematical calculation about sure. which of the three or so available archetype decks is the one you should play based on its win expectation against other known decks, right? That's a determination you can make. You can guess. I would say that it's probably doesn't matter, right? That, like, the difference between Mardu Vehicles and Mardu Ballista isn't that great. It, and obviously, something like, you know, whether or not somebody has Archangel Avacyn in their deck is a pretty important thing. Whether or not somebody has Walking Ballista is a pretty important thing. Like, Archangel Avacyn makes you really great in big creature brawls and gives you an interesting way to, to gain reach, right? Walking Ballista... Actually, those guys are awesome together, right? Walking Ballista yeah. can trigger Archangel Avacyn. Walking Ballista gives a deck a tremendous amount of resilience against the Healy Rye. It's not perfect, but you're talking about a deck that can already generate so much speed and pressure, right? So, you know, having some of those cards is is going to change your matchups, but it also changes your matchups against decks that have a Grasp of Darkness, right? Like, all, think about it. Like, if your opponents have Grasp of Darkness, how good is... Fatal Push. How good is Walking Ballista against Fatal Push? How good is uh, Archangel Avacyn against Grasp of Darkness? Right? Like, you're actually making your deck their matchups w- worse in some cases and better in some cases. Yeah. And it kind of evens out on the on the axis of who you end up playing against, right? And if you're going to play against some distribution of about three different decks, a lot of that's just luck, you know? And so... Sometimes it's the right thing to do, to play quote-unquote the deck to beat. In my mind, I've been playing for more than 20 years. I, I think it, the likelihood of that happening is relatively rare mathematically. Most people are kidding themselves when they, when they make some of these determinations. But there is always a best deck to play in a tournament. In a tournament, there's always a best deck. It doesn't necessarily mean that there's, that deck is going to be the best deck in the next tournament, right? But let's just say for sake of argument... You make a determination before a tournament starts that the best cards that came out of Aether Revolt, the highest performing cards, are going to be some combination of Fatal Push and Walking Ballista and Felidar Guardian, maybe. And that the other good cards are going to be like Grasp of Darkness, Winding Constrictor, you know, like, and you just create this this mental model for your, and Heart of Kieran, right? You and you're like, well, 100% of my opponents are going to have some combination of Walking Ballista, Heart of Kirin, Winding Constrictor, and Guardian. Felidar Guardian, right? 100% of them are going to have some, some combination of this. Yeah. That actually tells you a lot about the structure of a format. For example, how good is the card Grasp of Darkness against all the cards I named? Fine. Right. It's, it's bananas. It's Guardian kills. Ballista, it kills, kills every single one of those cards at a high level of mana effectiveness. Do I know this? I just made this statement. I know this, right? Yeah. Do you know this? Yes. Do you think everyone who has a serious chance of winning this tournament knows this? Yeah. The fact that everyone knows this now gives you additional information. Right? Sure. Right. So, so maybe you want to play a deck that isn't bad against that card, right? Like that's or like where that card, its efficacy is blunted some, right? Sure. So I'll give you a different example. Um, I think that, like, let's say we'll start with a paradigm that is, you know, all decks are going to have some combination of planeswalkers or vehicles. Do you think that's a true statement? Yeah. More or less a true statement, right? So either they have cards like... like Chandra, Sahili, Gideon, Nissa. Heart of Kirin. Um, what's the lifelink one that Brad plays? Aether Sphere Harvester. Yeah, like, they're all going to have some combination. That's information for you, Right. It's information that says, if I play cards that can target these kinds of cards, and I can target them in a man-effective way, then I will be able to gain tempo. So maybe Ruinous Path is a card that... Yeah, mm, maybe. Maybe. I think Ruinous Path is kind of bad, but... Um, <laughs> it is, yeah, it's still sorcery speed. But, I mean, I actually think that Grip of Desolation is a more effective card than Ruinous Path for, to do the same thing. Because Ruinous Path... But that card is six mana. It is, but, you, but the thing is... Like, you can you can either again enter the tournament say there's a two thousand five hundred person tournament. I'm going to play a known quantity where I play once I've played my third card. Okay, not my first card or my second card, but once I've played my third card, 
an informed opponent will have, if not 100% knowledge of my 75, close enough to make accurate predictions. Yeah. Okay? That is one universe you can play in. A different universe you can play in is it is difficult for people to predict the cards in my deck. If it is difficult for people to predict the cards in my deck, it is difficult for them to make the best plays. It doesn't change how much information I have. When they play their third card, I probably know what's coming. I can still make good decisions. They're going to make ragged decisions. Some of their decisions will be good. Some of their decisions will be misinformed. If you're playing in that world, you're assuming a trade-off. You probably think that whatever deck I have that's not one of the two and a half known decks is just worse. It might be worse, right? It might be worse on raw power. It might be worse on raw speed. But is it worse when we consider, like, the oh, whole mix, right? Yeah. So just say for sake of argument, you had a deck. Because there's, like, been formats like this. It was really good against Mardu Vehicles, really good against Black Green, and then really poor against uh, against Sahili, right? When is it rational to play a deck like that? When you think that there's going to be a lot of Mardu Vehicles, a lot of Black Green, and a small amount of Sahili. If you think there's going to be a lot of Sahili, you shouldn't play this deck, right? You see what I'm saying? It's, yeah. You're, you're going to get your, your predictions... Uh, either rewarded or punished, but I'll leave you with this, which is what we talked about in how to win a PT. I, this is this is how I like, try to approach every tournament. And sometimes I'm right and sometimes I'm wrong, okay? But it's, it goes like this. Let's say I play Black Green Energy, right? Okay. And I play it at a high level of competence such that I exceed, you know, the the probably 45% win expectation that the deck has, right? Let's say I go like five and four, I didn't even make day two, right? If I go six and three, which is also exceeding the, the win expectation of the deck, I make day two, but I'm out of contention already, right? Neither of these is a good outcome. Let's say I make some goober deck and I go like 0 and 3. Is 0 and 3 better or worse than 5 and 4? Same. It's better. Better? Yeah. What part of 5 and 4 is good? It's not good. It's not good. What part of 0 and 3 is good? I can stop playing my horrible deck, and I'm not holding up for hope anymore. When you go five and four, you are stretching out over at least nine hours of the day where you think you're gonna, you think you're gonna do well. Okay. And your outcome is actually exactly the same as my zero and three. Not making day two is exactly the same if you go five and four or go zero and three. I actually have more freedom than you. Okay. Okay. Think about it like that. Interesting. You can be wildly wrong, or you can be passively wrong, like you, because when you play the black green energy deck and you. You exceed expectations when you go six and three. You're already out of contention, right? You exceeded expectations substantially. And you have the exact same outcome as my own three. You can't win anymore. That, that is a thing that you can become empowered by. Now, here's the thing. You don't play a deck that goes 0 and 3 because you think it should go 0 and 3. You play a deck like this because it has high risk and high reward also means that you have high reward some of the time. You follow? I follow. Okay. All right. The deck that goes 0 and 3 is much more apt to go 9 and 0 than a random than a random uh, de- uh like green black. Green black. Deck. But you're saying, "Oh, but Mike, at the end of the day there's going to be a green black deck that went 9 and 0." Sure. I agree. There were also a thousand green black decks that went worse than 4 and 5. A thousand. So think about that, right? You can't control on the—you can control to some degree, right? But you can't really control being mana screwed, stuff like that. Where on the distribution you're going to fall if you're just going to be in this chunk of black-green decks, right? Yes, one of them will be—or three of them, maybe, will be will be 9-0. Uh, and 0. A thousand will be 4-5 and five or so. See that? Like, All right. You're going to really tell—oh, no, green-black was the best choice. That guy went 9-0. I'm like, really? Because I have— 500 cases where you're wrong. You have three cases where you're right, and I guarantee you at least one of them doesn't make top eight. Maybe all three of them don't make top eight. That's how every tournament works, right? But if you have something like, oh my gosh, think about how reinforcing uh, one of these rogue deck choices is. You're in a position where you went 9-0 and on day one. One of the reasons you went 9-0 and on day one is because people were misidentifying your deck, like Bob Maher in the article. One of the reasons that you went 9-0 is because people didn't have the cards to beat you. You think they're going to suddenly start having the cards to beat you on day two? No. Your deck might be terrible next week. You're not playing next week. You're playing now. Okay? You strike while the iron is hot. So here's the thing. Who cares if you went 0-3? It's the same as going 6-3. and 
Once you realize that, everything opens up. Mind blown. Seriously, right? You get it? No, I get it. Yeah, I think that that's a a good philosophy for looking at why why you should play a road deck. That even if you go, even if you just scrub out, it's one week. Yeah. Well, Chapin says if you're always net deck, you have no heart. But, but if you're if you're always rogue, you have no brain. Okay. You need a balance of yeah. The you, have, you choose sometimes, right? Yeah. Like, and I think um, I tend to be more rogue than I mean, certainly more rogue than average. The average yeah. person is. Never rogue, right? So I'm way more rogue than average. Probably more rogue than you should be. But I think I play in few enough tournaments that uh, it's mostly. I think about like, all the times I win. I never win with like the deck to beat in front of me. And I also find it to be. When I played Burn the first time uh, when, when I won that PBTQ, you remember this? Yeah. Like, like, why would you play that? Like, that was like your attitude. I was like, I was kind of indifferent to it. Like it was whatever. It doesn't it's a do fine deck, but whatever. Yeah, it was, it just, you didn't understand the nuances of it until you played it yourself, right? Or what about when I won the PVTQ when I played black, black, blue control? Right, I was the only person playing a deck like that in the tournament. Everyone was playing, I don't know, Jeskai decks. Would Abzan? You played Abzan in the tournament, right? Yeah. Why would you play that? Well, how about everyone has point removal cards, and I don't have any targets for their point removal cards. Like, doesn't, don't you get an inherent advantage when that happens? Sure. Like, they just have draws that are dead, right? Like, so the question is, are your cards bad? What if your cards aren't bad and you just have an inherent advantage? Isn't that just inherently awesome? Um, I don't know. That's how I look at it. All right. I think it's an interesting perspective to take, and in some cases, you might just end up winning the tournament. Yeah, and if you don't... Who cares? If you don't, you probably weren't going to win playing Black Green Energy. That's... <laughs> Sure. So I think there are a thousand I've, dudes who, who who didn't do. I've definitely felt like I've had experiences playing decks where I fall short of the win, and maybe playing something a little more spicier that you know was more suited for the field than like the regular average seventy five of the tournament. You know what I mean? Like I I think that it depends. Sure. If I were just going to try to play F and M, right? And I, my only thing I cared about was winning FNM, right? I'm like, I'm calibrating to be the most effective FNM player in the room. Okay. You do not have to work hard to be the no. most effective FNM player in the world. You can play whatever you want. If your goal is instead to win a tournament wherein there are at least a handful of players who are of world-class capability, right? Like, in that room, there's going to be platinum-level pros, etc. Yeah. If you do not introduce variability into your deck like you have to do something you called it spice right you got to do something different you are almost certain to be without the tools to be able to win because if you like just imagine this oh you're actually in this situation in real life right you played against brad nelson playing with brad nelson's deck yes you are almost certain to not win that one brad nelson is one of the best players in the world and he is a master of that deck he knows every single card you can draw because you just copied his deck you don't know every single card he can draw because he might have introduced some variability. Yeah, and I, he definitely played some cards out of his eye where I wasn't expecting. See? Yeah. So that's the problem. If you if you don't introduce variability, it's almost certain that you can't win the tournament. You cannot win. It's not that you won't win. Like You just can't win. Like, they're going to be able to make much better decisions than you, and they start off with a higher base. Mm-hmm. That's a really bad overlap for you, right? So... If you want to win the tournament, if you want to win a big tournament that has good players in it, not the only thing you can do. That's what I think. How'd you like the article, though? Good? It's good. All right. All right. So that was the Rogue Strategy. Ancestral Recall, episode number three. All right, Michael J., it's been fun. Bye-bye. See you around. Right. <laughs>